Hi, everyone. This is Kyle from The Career Guide. And before we start our podcast today, I just wanted to say thanks for listening and subscribing. And I also wanted to make sure that you knew that we have a free community for graduates, young professionals, or really anyone that's interested in finding, starting, and managing their international career. So go ahead and check the link in the show notes, and you can join us inside the community where there's 130-plus members already striving to achieve their international career. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you inside the community. And now on to our podcast. It's hard for graduates because you don't really know what's out there for you. And sometimes it takes, sometimes it takes seeing it to believe it. Mm. Um, and suddenly you're like, yeah, that would make sense for my career. And then from there, you're just building, you know, you're learning all the time on the job. And then it's about skill accumulation and relationship building. And and you start to have a bit more agency in the job market. You know, you start being able to pick and choose, you know, where you wish to go. So yeah, it was pretty organic, but once I locked eyes on that opportunity, I, I wasn't gonna let it go. Hey everybody, this is the Career Guide Podcast, brought to you by Capacity Building International and your host, Kyle King. If you've dreamed of working abroad and having an international career, this podcast is for you. Every episode is an interview with someone from the international community. We hear their stories, how they got started, and about their life and experiences while working abroad. Each episode will provide you with personal insights, tips, and strategies to help you launch your international career. We hope you enjoy this episode and make sure to follow us on LinkedIn and sign up for our career newsletter so you don't miss out on your future and opportunities. Today, we are talking with Adam Sharp. Adam is a futurist and meaningful youth engagement specialist. Having spent over a decade in the youth development sector, delivering educational programming to hundreds of thousands of people throughout Asia and Europe, Adam recognized the urgent need for a seismic shift in education and skills building to meet today's and tomorrow's collective challenges. He founded Youth Futures Think Tank and transformative foresight consultancy, Futurely. He co-founded the online futures learning platform, MetaFuture School, and consults for multinational organizations, including the United Nations and the Asian Development Bank. Adam is going to share his thoughts with us today, as, and along with his journey, as well as some insights on what people can do to launch their own international career. Adam, welcome. Thank you very much for joining us today for a, in the Career Guide and the Perspectives interview series. Um, so happy to have you here. And um, as we were just talking about before we started the session, I just wanted to really hear some of your perspectives and because uh, I think that you're going to bring a different sort of angle to the international work and international lifestyle that you're living and then what we traditionally might not hear from some of our other guests, which would be focused on these bigger organizations, which are more sort of, you know, North Atlantic centric as far as US and EU, maybe like European Union or NATO and things like that. And, and so I really am interested in talking to you today about some different perspectives in different countries and different experiences. Uh, but before we get started, um, I'd love to just uh, get an introduction from you and to uh, hear more about what you're doing. Thanks, Kyle, and um, thanks for the invitation and, and greetings to um, everyone who's watching. Um, yeah, brief intro. Uh, so my name's Adam Sharp. I'm um, British-born and I've been living in Thailand and working across Asia for the last, going on 12 years now. That's certainly, I did not expect that 12 years ago, but anyway, we'll get into that. Um, so currently, I'm a consultant for a number of international organizations, including the United Nations and the Asian Development Bank, primarily in areas like research and learning. 
and also with a strong focus on youth development, youth engagement. How do we engage this youth um, demographic dividend that Asia Pacific finds itself having to help solve some of the prominent critical challenges of today? Um, so that's kind of a weird skill set, but we'll get into that too. Um, I'm also director of learning at a uh, futures thinking online school called MetaFuture. MetaFuture School. So we help individuals and organizations use the future to change the present. So thinking 10, 20, 50, sometimes beyond years into the future where we don't have strong supporting data to create long-term strategies that work. And I recently, only a couple of weeks ago, actually launched my own Youth Futures Think Tank based here in Thailand called Futurely. So um, we specialize in engaging young people in that kind of 10, 20 year time horizon research around critical issues and emerging issues that maybe we haven't foreseen, um, advising governments, UN agencies, et cetera, and also doing capacity building work. So it's a, it's pretty diverse work that I've found myself in, but uh, yeah, that's, that's me. Well, that's, that's pretty interesting. That is pretty diverse. And I think a very unique set of uh, experience and, and focus that you've got. You mentioned that it's been about 12 years already. Um, how did you get started in terms of working internationally? And it, we've sort of discovered in our conversations with people that it, much like me, it's sort of, you know, I got started by accident, really. Um, didn't know what I was getting into, just got a phone call from a friend. And I was just, as I say, sort of just dumb enough to be like, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll move overseas and see what's going on. And so that's where I kind of just got started, but everybody sort of has their own sort of story. How did you get started with international work? I didn't really feel like I had a choice at the time. It was 2009. I was just a couple of years outside of university and I was in London working for a, a fast track 100 recruitment consultancy, placing finance professionals into the public sector. And it was in Pall Mall. And so I enjoyed walking past Trafalgar Square every day. I'm a Londoner, um, born and bred, but um, you probably can't hear that in my accent now. This is one of the issues with international life. You'll lose your accent. Okay. You start sounding like an American or an Australian or something, but you know, the company was doing very well, but I wasn't, you know, I was pretty awful at the job to be frank. And I was only really doing it because it would pay me enough to be able to live in London, my hometown. Right. Um, but when the financial crash hit in 2008, um, it was a matter of time before I was going to get canned. And my parents had already fled the country. They moved to Spain when I went to uni. So London is so expensive. It was like, well, I could wait in London to try and get a job in a completely different sector because I don't want to do recruitment. And I'd probably run through my savings in three months if I did that. Or I could take a chance, go to Southeast Asia, do some teaching, figure it out. And that's that's what I did. It made the most sense with the money that I had. And, and I also loved Southeast Asia. So I was like, let's let's take a chance. So I moved to Bangkok in 2009. I started teaching. Then I worked in music and entertainment, which led to fundraising for Burmese orphans living on the Thai-Burmese border. And that landed me a job at MTV End Exploitation Trafficking, running advocacy programs all over Southeast Asia, um, building youth networks who could spread prevention messages. Don't give up the passport. You know, Make sure you ask questions when you take a job abroad. Um, trying to prevent this enormous black market crime from mm -hmm. causing more harm. And 
Yeah, I mean, it was like, that was really my entry into the development world. Um, so it was incredibly opportunistic. Um, it was really about seizing opportunities and building skills through volunteering that allowed me to build my dream career, if you will. And, um, you know, since then, I've just had some incredible experiences. I, I remember shortly after moving to Thailand, I remember a few friends were on an island um, and playing cards. I remember it was like 1 a.m. And, and I just said, I need to just take a moment. And I wandered out into the ocean and looked up at this crystal clear uh, sky and just thought, wow, this is home. Like this holiday will doesn't have to end. You know, <laughs> there's no time limit on being somewhere beautiful like this. And um, it's no wonder I've never gone back, <laughs> to be honest. So yeah, that's how it started. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, I think that a lot of times, and especially if you work internationally long enough, I mean, you you tend to have these moments in time where you just sort of reflect for a moment, right? And you're just right. like, I actually can't believe I'm here. You know, like I'm, how did I end up here? You know, and you're some foreign country somewhere, you're working abroad, you're just doing these things, which you just had never planned for. You had no idea when you got started that that's where you would be. And, right. and so when you when you mentioned this, you, you sort of took this leap of faith. You went and you started, you moved to Bangkok, you just picked up and you left. And that took a, obviously a, a huge amount of courage. What Was there a sort of a point of transition that you could identify that like you, you started doing fundraising, but then all of a sudden you just really, it seems like you sort of just went really deep into this one area in terms of exploitation and youth. Was, it, was that just a gradual thing or did you just sort of discover like, this is the direction I want to go in and this is what I find the most appealing and I want, I want to engage in this space? It's a great question. I didn't really know that organizations like MTV Exit really existed. And I certainly didn't realize there'd be a job available for someone like me. You know, um, when, I, when I found out about the organization and I locked eyes on that opportunity that I knew brought together my passion for music, um, for teaching, um, for helping young people reach their potential and, and allowed me to travel all over Southeast Asia. You know, this is a project, a program that was funded by USAID and Australian aid. When I saw that that opportunity existed, I, I locked in on it. In fact, like they actually offered me a job and I had to be available on a start date that coincided with my sister's wedding. Okay. So I realized if I, I had to miss my sister's wedding to take this job. When I realized that and I had to give up on my dream of working for an organization like this, I think I smashed a lamp or something. <laughs> and, uh, but I couldn't miss my sister's wedding. So I went back home, went to my sister's wedding, came back to Thailand during the floods. Okay. And I had no job, no income, but I knew I wanted this job. And uh, I worked hard. I kept doing my thing. And eventually, a few months later, I'm playing guitar in a bar. I don't know if I'm coming across very well in this interview, really. This was 12 years ago, okay? Um, and they walked in, the MTV Exit guys, and I'll never forget it. The director wrote with Tabasco sauce on an A4 sheet of paper, you're hired. And uh, whilst I was playing some Tracy Chapman wow. number. And uh, so I, I think that, like, it's hard for graduates because you don't really know what's out there for you. And sometimes it takes, sometimes it takes seeing it to believe it. Mm. Um, and suddenly you're like, yeah, that would make sense for my career. And then from there, you're just building, you know, you're learning all the time on the job. And then it's about skill accumulation and relationship building. And 
and you start to have a bit more agency in the job market. You know, you start being able to pick and choose, you know, where you wish to go. Um, so yeah, it was pretty organic, but once I locked eyes on that opportunity, I, I wasn't going to let it go. Mm. And there's sort of a lot to unpack there. And, and I'm glad you sort of said that and, and told that story because I think what that sort of reflects, at least in my experience anyway, is that you have to, at least first of all, put yourself out there, right? You have to, mm. you have to try international careers are not going to come to you. And, and part of the right. things that I teach in the workshop is like, actually international organizations do not care about you at all, right? right. And in terms of the value relationship, you know, they have all the value. They get thousands of applicants every for every opening. They are not, they are in such a high position of value in the job market. They simply don't care if you succeed or fail. Right. And so, and, and that reason it causes us to, we have to take some ownership we had to put mm. ourselves out there like you, you know, you just you just sort of went for it and you put yourself out there and you you look for the opportunities and you keep your eyes open for the opportunities so that you you are in that position that you can capture them when they do come up. And I think that's something that we have to learn. Unfortunately, I think the more people that I talk to, the more students I talk to, that's that's difficult to understand in the beginning uh, is the fact that you actually have to really take ownership and kind of take over the control of your own career. You can't just necessarily like, well, I'm just going to apply when they open. You have to sort of get into this creative piece and create and manifest the career that you want. You can't wait for someone to give you the dream job and with with your career trajectory, it's often going to stagnate at the same level unless you make an effort to build skills. And, And often I've had tremendous success at doing things for free often to build the skills that I felt were going to build up my value and, and help me succeed and progress in my career. I would have never got that role at MTV Exit had I not been volunteering on the Thai-Burmese border and, and volunteering running events in Bangkok. And I was broke, right? But I had a damn good time doing it. Um, but most importantly, it allowed me to, to build skills. And I've carried that with me ever since. I mean, when COVID hit and we were in lockdown here in Thailand, I knew that futures thinking would be an important skill for organizations to build, especially when their teams were now working in um, like distributed teams around the world. And they also had no idea how they were going to adapt to this new normal, as they put it. And I'd been building some futures thinking skills, but I wasn't qualified enough for someone to hire me into a role like that. So I gave an organization a free workshop and said, let me work with your team. We'll design the next 10, 20 years of your industry, your sector or your organization. And you know me, I know you, I, I built that relationship. I said, just this is just for you guys. I, I want you to benefit from, from these skills. I, I think it'll be valuable. And the least that'll happen is your team will have a good time. Um, that became my, my number one consulting client. The workshop went well. We wrote an article, it got published, um, which gave me some notoriety in the, fil- in the field of futures. And it just sprouted out into like the last couple of years of just incredible opportunities that have emerged from that. So people say, know your value, don't work for free. And there's truth to that. But if you have your eyes on the prize and you need that experience to really get there, to make something happen and to learn, by the way, um, it's worth taking a shot um, and and giving up your time um, to build skills in the area where you want to build your career. Yeah, there's there's lots to discuss with that. The 
the the interesting thing there is that uh, first I want to ask a question though. And so many times when I talk with students and things like, and there's there's issues that come up, which is maybe they don't have a full understanding of their skill set. Maybe they don't have a full understanding mm-hmm. of their niche or what they're looking at. And so the question becomes, how could I get to the point like you were at, where I said, okay, mm-hmm. I have this skill in futures and mm-hmm. let me help you. So how do mm-hmm. I even get to that point to where I could do something for free to demonstrate value, to be able to build relationships and sort of my profile? Uh, how, do we, how do we get from there to, to, to that from where they are today to that place. And this is often what I tend to to coin the term of like going from head to hands, right? This is where we have ideas in our head, but we have to operationalize it. We have to bring it to life. We have to create, Mm. we have to sort of bring these things together into a demonstrable product. Like this is, this is what I do. This is how I build things. So how, if you're, if people who are starting in their careers or even three, four, five years into the career may not have exactly found that, that niche or that skill set. What what do you think about that? How did you get to a point of where you were like, I can do this and let me show you how this works? Well, we're all very different. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately you have your own path and and I have my own skill sets that certainly lend themselves to this. So for example, I'm very outgoing and, you know, I'm a complete extrovert, like, you know, mark one extrovert. Okay. So I have no problem reaching out with confidence and saying, I've got something for you. But that was a relationship that I built over a number of years. So it wasn't coming in completely cold. So again, my experience, um, there's only so much value you can get from it. I hope it's valuable. Um, I would say what has worked for me is focusing on areas that I'm passionate about. Um, The passion led to the focus, led to figuring out how I could make a difference in that area, led to me building skills and and so on and so forth. When I quit teaching in order to pursue a career in like, I didn't know I was going to try and pursue a career in development when I quit my teaching job, lost my work permit and put everything at risk. This is one of the issues with international careers. You know, the other issue is visa. You know, when you lose your job, you lose your ability to live in a country most of the time, which means making a big decision to switch careers abroad is a high risk maneuver. And I just took the risk and have kind of been taking that risk ever since, uh, because, you know, most millennials will have between 12 and 18 jobs over the course of their career. And I'm certainly on course for that kind of trajectory. I've worked for a number of different organizations. It's tough to do that. That's because most organizations would rather hire on a temporary basis. They don't want to commit to you long term. So that means, you know, you this is not, I don't think this is for everyone. You know, it's quite, it's quite risky to make the kind of decisions that that I made. So how do you go about it? I think be passionate, know, know your direction. I, I think that people who I've worked with, they love people who are like, you said earlier, you 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 made a point, you said organizations don't care about you. It's a value exchange. It's a value exchange. Any, if they're hiring you, they're putting money on the table because they need a particular skill or service that you can provide. So for, for people who speak great English, for example, like who want to move into the development sector, one of the skills that we need all the time in the development sector is strong writers. We need great report writers. We need um, great grant application writers. You know, we need people who can write good, strong 
presentations and communiques. And so right away, that's a particular niche that someone who is passionate about being in development, say, maybe really wants to work for the United Nations, can clock on to something like that and start figuring out what are the tricks here. And again, I would just say, try and do some voluntary work with an organization if it's possible. If you can say, I want to help you apply for grants. You know, I want to help you write reports. You know, I just came out of uni. Let me use my research skills to help you write the best report you can write on this particular topic. Organizations usually are, in my experience, they're shorthanded and they could really use that additional skill set and support in terms of writing. So anyway, these are just, I'm thinking out loud here. I hope it's valuable, but um, I, I, my experience is the passion that came first and, um, and that gave me the direction. And then it's just building relationships and, and seizing opportunities when they come. Yeah, no, I, it's definitely valuable. And, it, and it's, it's quite funny because, you know, we haven't talked in very much since this actual interview and, and you're echoing a lot of things that I talk about with in some of our programs, which and it's all a, I'll sort of break into two different sort of areas, but I, I want to emphasize the one thing that you said, which is, you know, you have to sort of put yourself out there. You have to go test things. You have to test ideas. You have to go volunteer. You have to go build that experience. And right. that feedback is so valuable. Yeah, right. And so if exactly. you go to an organization and, and they like you, most of the smaller nonprofits, especially are a great market to go and you know validate your ideas, validate your skill set, and also gain experience. Because I think in a, to a certain extent, we also need to stop asking for permission to have right. experience. You know, right. And we don't need to be paid by somebody in a formal position to have experience. I think that's largely incorrect mm. logic these days. You yes. know, as, as you've done with many organizations and nonprofits, and you just go and say, let me help you, that's a huge exchange of value. And that is in of itself professional experience. And so I think we right. need to reframe our minds a bit, especially entering the workforce about that, you know, what is experience. And, right. and the other piece I think is, is really important is the fact that, you know, it, it's the issue. And, and I think you mentioned it originally, but it, it's, you know, you've got to take the chance. You've got to take the chance to just go out there and try and figure these things out. And, mm. and that's going to be incredibly important. And, I think many times people are stuck with the idea of I have to first sort of get the job and then determine where I'm going. And they're sort of stuck behind this application process. And it's, it's, it's very much as what I call a zero sum game. It's like, if you never find the opportunities, you're never going to apply because you don't know about them. And so there, there is value in just getting out and talking with people, building out networks, building out relationships, because uh, as from what I understand from what you're talking now and what you've been saying is that a lot of this has sort of come from relationships you've already built. It's from the exposures, the connections of just putting yourself out there, being the extrovert and going out and talking with people and, and to, you know, slowly this network builds out that you can benefit from. You know, I definitely echo everything you just said, Carl. I think that like, when you talk about the application, the other thing that graduates do, and, and people often do throughout their careers, is they read application uh, criteria literally. So they see like, the, the classic is, I need a master's degree to go work in international development. That's the classic. Or I need to speak more than one language, you know, if I'm going to be able to work in this industry, you know, or 
Now, all of these barriers that we put in place because we see job criteria and understandably we think, well, that's out of my reach. You know, again, I'm, I'm extremely privileged to have a, a strong education and, and to speak fluent English. And, and, you know, I have, I have some skills to bring to the table, but like, I, I only speak one language and I don't have a master's degree. And if I stopped short of the application process, I probably would have been unemployed for years. So these are often psychological barriers that we put in place that prevent us from taking steps forward in our careers. And again, um, they're often, that's the ideal, that's the employer is trying to get the best quality candidate possible, but the best quality candidate we know is not necessarily an academic. The best quality candidate is someone who can step in and do the best quality job possible and is gonna be able to deliver um, hopefully over and uh, over and beyond expectations, but ideally just deliver without me having to do too much handholding. Usually this is what an employer is looking for. So, and again, you don't have to meet the application criteria 100%. They're just trying to get the best person they can. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I will say is ultimately, if you're not doing a good job, you're not going to get a job. Like when you get an opportunity, it seems so obvious, but when you, Whenever I've gotten an opportunity, I've been very grateful. Like I know that like it's extremely competitive out there. I really, really do work hard to make sure that like I deliver over and above. And this is extremely important for consultants um, who go contract to contract because this is a small, it's a small world. I mean, here in Bangkok, almost every UN agency has a has a headquarters or an Asia Pacific office in Bangkok. You've got lots of international organizations here, lots of multinational corporates here. It's actually quite incestuous. A lot of these organizations work together. You've really got to protect your reputation. You've really got to mm. do the best work you can when you get an opportunity. And if people like you and you do a good job, word gets out. You know, it, it does spread. You know, people do come to me. I haven't actually applied through a job application on a website in years. It's all word of mouth. And people know what I do. They know what I can do and they will come to me for a job. It's taken years to get to that point, but that's about finding a niche, doing the best job you can whenever you get an opportunity. And, you know, if you're just applying cold with a CV, you know, good luck with that. That's tough. You know, that's very, very hard to get a job cold with a CV. Extremely tough. Even if you have the master's degree and, and multiple languages under your belt, it's really, really tough out there. So I think relationship building is critical, finding your niche, doing a very good job and um, ask people for references. Ask, mm -hmm. you know, ask for help. You know, say, I yeah. really want to work in this area. Can you, uh, do you have any advice? I, I found people I've asked for mentorship flattered and eager to help someone in the industry. So anyway, I'm, I'm nattering on, but I, I don't like to see people hold themselves back based on falsehoods and their own psychology. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. And, and many good points there. And I think one of the things that we, or, or some people have to tend to, well, I mean, I even, I've done it in the past. I'm guilty as well, but um, we, we do create obstacles, right? We do create barriers to progress and whether real or not, we believe they're, they're barriers, you know? And, and so, 
I'm, I'm not sure I'm qualified for this position. So therefore I'm not going to apply. Well, I can imagine the competition, you know, and, and we get into this position of what, especially as you're, you're graduating and you're looking at job market along with the other 250 graduates that just got master's degrees, right. From your cohort. <laughs> and you're looking laterally and you're looking laterally across the other people and seeing what they're doing in sort of your cohort cohort and your age group. And, mm. and I try to, to get people to understand much like you're just saying, which is, you know, you're sort of creating an artificial comparison here. Look at the job market data, look at the job description and see what they're specifically asking for. Don't look at somebody to your left and right who has two master's right. degrees and a PhD and, and whatever, because that doesn't reflect what the actual person is looking for in the in right. the, the job application and, the, and in the business or the organization you want to work for. Because yeah. even, you know, when I sit on hiring boards, even, you know, these days now, you know, just because you have a PhD doesn't mean you're a better qualified candidate, no. you know, and, and, and sometimes, <laughs> sometimes to be honest, you're really not, you know? <laughs> and so more often than not, you're, you're not the right candidate for the position. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I think a lot of people get stuck into what it's one of my sort of criticisms. If I had any is, is the higher education trap, which is, as you've mentioned, people look at that and they say, I need to be more qualified. I need to be more competitive. I need a better profile. And so what they tend to do is to default almost, I don't want to say it's easier, but they default to education. And so who do they ask for advice? This goes to your mentorship point, I think, as well. Who do they ask for advice? Well, they ask their professors. They ask the universities. And what are they going to mm -hmm. say? And I always tell people, don't forget higher education is a business model, right? right? So don't forget more students equates to more tuition equates to more funding. So right. asking for a second master's degree or you should do your PhD is nice advice, but they should actually do what you're doing, which is like talk to people in the community, mm -hmm. engage in the community, talk to people, ask for mentorship, ask for advice, ask people where they would start. I, I saw on LinkedIn a post from a guy I used to work with at the UN, and he was saying, I just got my third master's degree and I still can't get a job. And he was like, getting sick of this, you know, getting tired of this, like, and uh, I've always known him to be quite, he, he's, he has, he's one of those guys who's, he has friction with people. He doesn't have strong interpersonal skills. He's an exceptional academic. He's a really strong researcher. He really knows how to analyze data. He's the kind of guy who can successfully get three master's degrees. I mean, that's a feat, you know, that's a skill. I don't, I don't think I have that kind of patience. I don't think I have that kind of focus. You know, I'm just different. And I messaged him and I told him, maybe you should offer to do something for free. <laughs> and um, wow, he was not happy with my advice. I mean, I think he just, you know, he said, after doing all this work, you think I'm going to start doing things for free? I don't think he even replied. I was trying to help out, you know. Um, but yeah. yeah, it's 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 tough. It's tough out there, especially when you think that degrees lead to um, lead to jobs. They do, but if they're jobs that require you to write and research for a long, long time, if you want to go work in academia, perfect. You know, if you want to, and there are certain research jobs at the United Nations, for example, and I assume at NATO, for example, that really require that level of diligence. And those are the kind of jobs that someone who's and an academic and finds it easy to accumulate master's degrees. I mean, hats off to you. Um, I couldn't do it. There's definitely roles for people like that. Um, but it's a tough market. And um, again, my experience just isn't, you know, I don't think he's going to do what I did, you know, and, and the way I opened up jobs. So anyway, 
Now, there's definitely a role. There's definitely a place for people with that certain skill set, right? Just like we're talking 100%. about with everything. It's, I mean, analysts, political analysts, economic analysts, think tanks, that's all, they all have a place. Um, so maybe there's just a, a job, you know, sort of, there's a mismatch on career fields yeah. there. But I think, yeah. I think I wanted to kind of, because you mentioned something earlier, which I wanted to talk about, because I don't think people fully understand the international life. Um, right. you mentioned high risk, high reward kind of scenarios, you know, and then this is something that I don't think people actually really understand. I mean, we're, we're going through sort of a course revision with the stuff we're working on and we're actually, this came up in a, in a discussion. I didn't even really think about it until just, you know, about a month ago. And it was really, you know, what is the decision-making process that people have when they think about an international career? I think sometimes we, mm. I, we have this idea of I'll be international. I'm, I'm going to do these things and, you know, travel and experience life and cultures and cuisine and, you know, all these kind of the great things, but you don't realize donor funded projects, you know, timelines, contracts, as you mentioned, visa requirements, moving. I mean, uh, there's a lot there, the, the insecurity, the uncertainty, uh, and I, I think the amount of resilience you have to have as a human being to to function in a society all by yourself when you first move over. Like when I when I came to Ukraine, you know, it's like I can't read the language. I don't speak the language It's complete because it's not coming from my background. I can speak in right. English and German and, and things like that. But then it's a completely foreign environment to me. And you're like literally right. walking around with Google Translate, you know, and you're like, where's the store, you know, <laughs> but it's right. uh, it. I think this kind of perspective people don't have enough of, especially when they want to start with an international career. Mm -hmm. They think of the bigger institutions. But it's always it, it's always a little bit more difficult. There's always more to these decisions. And so how has it been for you in terms of what are your considerations when you're thinking about making a move or like the next project? And, and what does that mean for you? What are some of the thoughts that come up for you in terms of if I were to take on this project, what does that mean for me? Or this position, for example? Well, let's just say I, I've abandoned the focus on security because it doesn't exist. So mm, interesting. What, what do I mean by what? Do, so there's, well, there's two reasons why I've abandoned focus on security. One, because it's really challenging to find it. Um, again, increasing prevalence of short-term contracts, reluctance of international organizations um, to invest in full-time staff who are not local. Because, and again, this depends on the country that you're in, you have to jump through a lot of hoops to hire a foreigner in a country like Thailand, for example. You have to have mm -hmm. a certain amount of capital. You have to have a certain number of Thai staff. And so if they, even if they love you, it's challenging. So I'm not focused on finding security. Okay, I have, over the years, built my own security. I'm married. I have a son. I have my own business. You know, I have my own income that, like, I can rely. I don't have to rely on the Thai economy to live. So that took years to build. So what are my considerations? For me, I've got to a stage now in my career where my consideration is, is this client, do they care about what they're asking me to do? What I want to avoid is bad clients. And what I mean by that is, say, for example, for an organization who asks or inquires about futures thinking 
or say a meaningful youth engagement program, an organization wants to bring young people into their policymaking processes, or they want to use futures thinking to map strategies 10, 20 years down the line. I try to avoid the clients who want to do that in a tokenistic way, meaning they want to engage youth because it's a tick box exercise, or they want to do futures thinking because it's a fun team building activity. I'm not interested in working with a client that's not serious about the work that I do. Again, it took a while to figure out who those clients are. And uh, it took a while to have the kind of financial security to be able to choose which clients I want to work with. Okay, so that's my position now. A few years ago, though, what was my consideration? It was absolutely to do with building skills and doing work that I was passionate about. So, for example, I worked at MTV Exit. It was extraordinarily challenging, but I, I came away from that with a skill set around advocacy, you know, being able to build advocacy programming, being able to develop youth networks, being able to design communication campaigns using, you know, TV, newspaper print to advocacy in in villages, you know, going around with posters, you know, really like urban and rural context. So a very unique skill set. I realized leaving MTV Exit that event producers were 10 a penny. There's a lot of them. You know, it's not like that. It's not that unique. And it's, it's, it's not that specialized. And it's not that well paid. But when I doing an advocacy program like MTV Exit, I figured out there's this urgent need in the development world for monitoring and evaluation skill. We need to be able to make evidence-based decisions about about the work that we're doing and the decisions that we're making in development. We need to be more accountable for the aid money that we're spending. And so I was determined to build skills in M&E so I could measure the programs that I was running. And so I did some voluntary work for a monitoring and evaluation consultancy. I ended up on their advisory board. And since then, I've done some research work that I'm really proud of. I, I work with the UN Democracy Fund to evaluate one of their programs in the south of Thailand. I recently worked with the UN um, country team here in Thailand to evaluate all of their work on youth across the country. So again, same formula, right? There's an opportunity here. This is a skill set that's high value, that, that is compensated well, and I don't see many um, strong m and professionals in my space. And it's going to make me a better event producer if I understand how to make evidence-based decisions, how to include and integrate monitoring and evaluation in the design to the, you know, to the program rep. So I'm making decisions about my next steps also based on the skills I want to build and the direction I want my career to go in, right? So I'm abandoned security. I, I want to get high value skills. And ideally, I want to work for organizations that that are notable you know if i can do work with the united nations with the asian development bank i can build a reputation that says if he can work with them you know he's probably you know he's gonna he's probably gonna be all right for us so those are some of the some of my considerations and also you know i, I want to be reasonably compensated for my work um, as well. So these are, these are things it's, it's rarely ever about safety and security. I had to build that, like you have to build that resilience. You know, it's just, just a reality that there's very little security for you. So focus on being the best professional you can be and creating the career that you want. That's high value and, uh, and will compensate you well, uh, and do a, do a good job as much as you can. Those are some of my considerations, but they've changed now, you know, it, it changes over the course of your career.
Oh, definitely. I actually had this conversation yesterday um, with the small group coaching program that we have. And, and we were talking exactly about that because the day prior to that, I was engaged in a conversation with one of our long-term clients and, you know, discussing sort of 2023, like what's going on in 2023. And you get to a certain point in your career where you can shape those discussions about where you want to go, what you want to do, who you want yes. to work with once you sort of get to a professional level in your career. And, yes. and so I can completely echo that same sentiment is that you have the ability to choose and that's a luxury, um, but you Absolutely. first have to create that. Now, I've seen some people um, that are trying to enter into the, the international career field. They express a certain hesitation towards this type of entrepreneurial mindset, right? right. Where we talk about taking ownership of your career, building out your skill sets, and, and you mentioned using skills yourself as a method to for a sort of career path design, right? I want yeah. to learn this, so therefore I'll do that. That's a, that's a great topic that I'd like to talk on as well. But when you mentioned this sort of mindset that you build, to me, I just sort of call it an entrepreneurial mindset, right? You have to take things on yourself and build it mm. and, and be resilient in doing so. What would you mm. say to people that, you know, are sort of, graduating and entering the workforce with more of a traditional mindset. I've, I want to find a job and start working, but it's in this context of the international environment that we're talking about the international community where it's not exactly the same that say working back home is. And so they need to well, sort of build out this mentality. It's tough to build an entrepreneurial mindset. I mean, I, for example, my, my partner, my wife, she, she would not like to be doing what I'm doing. She likes working for international organizations and she wants the stability. She wants her monthly paycheck. She wants her guaranteed salary. The bigger the organization, the better, right? And more power to her. I, I you know, I kind of wish sometimes that that's what I was like. It's not for everyone, Kyle, you know what I mean? And, um, you know, if you want to build an international career, but you're not entrepreneurially minded, I think unless you're being hired by an international company based on the company you're working for now and usually people who have that privilege are a bit later in their careers it's tough to make that step it's very hard to give that kind of advice you know because it's like if you don't if you don't feel that i mean i i certainly didn't have this level of you know confidence or resilience when i first moved i mean i i mean for me it took more resilience living in london I mean, people say it's courageous me moving to Southeast Asia to build my career. Like it was courageous staying in London in 2009 after the financial crash. Like right. that was like, and, and running out of savings, like quick, you know, like I think it's, I think it's a good idea to assess your financial position, think carefully about the country that you want to go to and see if you can get a step in somehow with some stability. I mean, again, one option is to go traveling in a place and meet people and see if it's for you. Um, and, you know, see if you can work it out that way. Um, you could even like what I did, my insurance policy, I got a TEFL. I got to teach English as a first language certificate before I moved. That meant that mm -hmm. if the worst happens, I can always fall back on teaching um, if I need to, because I know that like there's, there's a need for that skill in the country that I'm going to. So have a fallback and maybe try out teaching for a couple of years. Maybe it's not your dream career. Maybe it's not what you're passionate about doing, but 
you know, try it out. Um, you know, you'll get to know the culture, you'll get to know the country, and you'll also build skills. Teaching is not easy. I don't care what the context is. That would be my advice. You want an international career, get an insurance policy, figure out what you can do anywhere. And that's usually for English speakers. That's that's teaching. Yeah, and I think also with the this sort of I try to caveat that sort of advice that I give as well and say, okay, I, I use the terminology of entrepreneur entrepreneurs, you know, mentality and having this entrepreneurial spirit. But and at the same time, I think people just need to be creative in their approach. Right. So and I don't mean you go form a business exactly. You know, it doesn't mean you go just establish a business yeah. and try and build out a business model and do all these things. I'm saying that and what I try to communicate is be creative, be creative in how you're trying to find these solutions. You know, if one doesn't mm -hmm. work, try something else, because coming from an entrepreneur mindset, it just means that you're you know, trying to solve problems and knocking down obstacles. You know, that didn't work. Try something else until you can unlock whatever the key to success is. So it, it's not, it, they don't have to form a business, but they at least have to take that mentality of this creative mentality of like, okay, I have to find a solution here because it's not just going to happen for me. It's not like I'm just going to jump on LinkedIn and see this advertisement and then be like, all my dreams come true. You know, that's right. rarely how this actually functions. So to your, to your point of um, just kind of shifting gears a bit, because I wanted to address this one thing that you mentioned, which is using skills to plan your career a bit more or your next project, mm -hmm. for example. That's one of the things that we also tell people like, okay, if you if you find you're deficient, if you do a self-assessment, if you find that you're deficient mm -hmm. in a skill set, and you know, you're looking at a future job that you want and you see that you need monitoring and evaluation as a skill set, what are you going to do to get there? Like that's some of the things mm -hmm. that we also tell people because by the time that you are available to apply for that position, you should be qualified for that position. So there's right. there's sort of a process that people need to go through. What is your process? So you mentioned that, and I think that's a great point. Can you elaborate on that? Well, again, I think you it's about being perceptive enough to figure out, you know, what are the gaps in my skill set? Again, I'm this very um, outgoing guy who's, you know, uh, I'm a probably, you know, if I was just going to be true to like my skill set, like if you, if you were just going to do a job where it was like, we could all do a job that's like perfect for us. Okay. But we don't do that often because, you know, we want to build skills in other areas. Often we don't see the skills mm. that we have as assets because they're skills that we have. So we devalue the skills that we have, even though other people will greatly value that skill because it's something that maybe comes naturally to us. So what comes naturally to me being a facilitator, I love facilitating group conversations um, and, you know, even hosting, if there's an event going on and there's a microphone, the bigger the crowd, the better. Honestly, this is my, I, I just love it. It's just easy for me. It's its like natural. I think it's to do with the fact I was a singer as a kid and I just have lots of memories of being a child and lots of people clapping me. Okay. So I just, I just love it. The bigger the crowd, the better. Um, so, but I find in our career, we don't often do what matches us perfectly right away. Cause over the course of your career, you're, you're stretching yourself. You're, it's like it's like my wife is the same as me but she wants she's she works in like consulting in finance even though she was terrified of finance why because she really wanted to conquer that demon these are these are demons a lot of this is psychological and they hold us back right so me wanting to learn monitoring evaluation was me saying god i'm just this like 
clown that you wheel out and I produce these big events and I have this huge gap in that like there's no rigor behind what I'm doing I was being hard on myself but I I felt like I was really lacking and, and I also felt like I lacked credibility um in certain circles right and that that gave that really irked me so like I had a desire to be better you know to improve and to and to bring value to to organizations and that you know that really drove me so i think you've got to have honest conversations with yourself you know about where are my strengths where are the gaps and like how do i become a better more rounded professional and the truth is that the skills are out there to be learned there's an online course for anything you want to learn and there's tons of people out there that can make for great mentors if you want to learn in a particular area and and you made a good point you know the the small like ngo sector is a great place a great training ground for you to like learn learn the ropes you know and often in some low risk you know circumstances um so I, again i think that i've just been really eager to to improve and i think some people don't have that desire um you know it's just i, I feel lucky to have that kind of um that kind of drive. I hate nothing more than feeling like the dumbest person in the room. And, uh, you know, I hate it. You know, I really want to understand what I'm talking about, you know? Um, and, uh, it just, it just took time. You know, that's some really, that's pretty insightful and pretty powerful. I think when you look at it from the perspective of, so if somebody's sitting there and they're saying, what skills should I develop? And you went through this phase of where you said, I don't, I, and I'm just paraphrasing in my own words, but you felt sort of that you didn't have the depth of expertise that you needed, right? Mm. If, if somebody's sitting there, you know, the, the, the advice could simply also be that if, if I was doing my own evaluation and my own assessment and I'm working and I don't, I feel like I'm not honest or not true, or I'm, or how can I say, I don't feel like I'm you know, uh, maybe a straw man or whatever the case is like, I'm not really, mm. I don't have the depth of expertise to be doing this. Mm. Then that's the first indicator that maybe you should just develop that skill set, Right. So then yes. you should inventory and say, what is it then that you're missing? If you feel that way, what is it that would make you feel better? You know, if you're looking at somebody else and you feel like they're that consummate professional, they know everything they're hundred percent, they're rock solid. Then what is it about them? Yes. Like find some way to identify that gap, identify that skill set, because you could be very good at sort of the self-reflection, but I think that's not inherent with everybody. Your point was, right. was excellent, which is we devalue our own skills yeah. because we're just good at them and they come naturally. So therefore they must have no value. And that's entirely incorrect. I do that myself. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, and I think that's human nature and that's a, that's a fantastic point. But if we felt like we weren't, as robust as we could be in a certain area and we had a gap or, and we, you know, I think your point is great. If, if you feel like that that's missing, then you should just be addressing it and build that experience. Mm -hmm. And that's one way to do that assessment. If you feel like you're, you're, you're fronting or you're not the person, or, you know, you're trying to fake it till you make it or whatever you want to use as far as the terminology goes, if you're in that place, then you should be really sort of looking inside and saying, what would make, what would change that? What would make you feel different about that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we're getting, uh, we're, we're wrapping up to we're already near an hour, um, <laughs> but it's been a really a great conversation. And I always just sort of like to close out the, the, 
the interviews here with just the, the last question of if you were starting over and, you know, knowing everything, you know, today, <laughs> I can see oh you're smiling goodness. already. So knowing everything that you're knowing today already, and you've learned all these things about the international life and everything, what would you do differently if you were starting over now? My goodness. Um, I mean, first of all, I, I, I have a wife and a child and a life that I love. So I, I, of course I, I, most things I wouldn't change, but I think if I could start again, I would have been a lot more careful about the country I chose to go to. Like, I think I would have done more research into what is the best country to build my career in. I mean, I knew that Thailand was affordable. Um, it was beautiful and it was a regional hub. Right. And so if I'm going to build a career anywhere, it might as well be in, in Asia and the Pacific, you know, the emerging economies, um, you know, a beautiful place um, that that has so much going for it. And, but I didn't know how challenging it would be for a foreigner to, to get work here. I didn't know that like for an international organization to hire you, they would have to jump through so many hoops. I didn't know how archaic it can be to set up a company. I just went through this process now. Um, setting up a company as a foreigner in Thailand is hard and expensive. You know, I didn't realize how politically unstable the country really was, you know, and, and mm. some of that, you know, came later, um, you know, the, well, Thailand, you know, you know, there's, there's always been some level of political instability and in coups, et cetera. But, um, you know, that instability impacts an economy tremendously. And, you know, Thailand has been stagnating economically for the last couple of decades. And, and, you know, you can, you can see it, you can feel it. Um, sometimes in the job market, right? And I think, you know, if I'd assessed things, I think I'd, I'd have still come to Southeast Asia, right? Because again, I think it's exciting. I, I don't think I'd want to move to China at the time. And I think it would have been more challenging doing that. I think I would have probably gone to a country like Vietnam. You know, I love the country. It's the first country in Southeast Asia that I visited. I, I, I ran a number of development programs, you know, particularly in the north of the country. And I met some brilliant professionals there. The people are so down to earth and like they're very hardworking. And they, you know what I love about the Vietnamese? They don't care that you're a foreigner. They, you're nothing special and they treat you as such. They had the French, you know, they had the Americans and they don't care about you being a foreigner. In Thailand, you know, you're the Falang, you're the foreigner. You'll always be the foreigner. You're, you're separate. You're treated differently. Um, I like you know, Vietnamese, they remind me of Londoners, you know, they're just down to earth. They just, they tell you as it is, they'll make fun of you, you know? So I miss, I miss that. I would have thought a little bit more about the culture, but I don't think I'd have ever known that until I'd actually worked there in Vietnam and traveled there. Um, but plus Vietnam is the emerging economic powerhouse of the region. You know, in the next 10, 20 years, mm. Vietnam will be, you know, a, an enormous, you know, economic power um, in the region. Um, as the global economy shifts to India and China more and more in 20 years, especially with the aging societies in the OECD countries, you know, Asia and the Pacific will, you know, will benefit tremendously from being in that sphere of influence. 
come 2040, 2050, Africa too, that's where the demographic dividend is going to be. You know, the, there's going to be more young people in Africa in 2040, 2050 than anywhere else in the world. You know, look up the impact on aging societies. This is one of the big challenges facing, you know, the United Kingdom and, and the United States and, and many countries in the Western world. In an aging society, you'll have more people retired and out of work than people entering the workforce. And that is is going to have a tremendous impact on economic growth. And it's going to mean the countries that do have the youth dividend, like those in Southeast Asia now and Africa in 2040, will have the growth. So the world is really changing. And I think Vietnam might have been a slightly better place to plant my flag in the sand. <laughs> but um, but all in all, um, no regrets, Kyle. You know, it's been a, it's been a hell of a journey. And um and I'm I'm very happy with my life here after you know 12 years. And um not looking to head home just yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, Adam, thank you. This is absolutely an amazing uh, discussion, and I really appreciate your insights and and uh, you know the perspectives that you're giving, well, me and everybody else that's listening to this conversation. So it's always good to be able to talk to other people working in the international environment and, and to kind of share these ideas and thoughts. And, and I learn from every one of these conversations. So it's absolutely amazing. Thank you for your time. So where, if people want to find you, where can they find you? Where can they see the work that you're doing and, and sign up and, and follow some of your work? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, yeah, a couple of places, uh, futurely.online. Um, check out the Youth Futures Think Tank and the training programs that we do. We're also a foresight consultancy, so we work with organizations to design their long-term strategies, um, You know, bringing their teams together to have conversations that are sort of out of the ordinary and and help them step away from the everyday management of reality and start, you know, really creating new possibilities using the future. So check out my work there. Um, if you're interested in learning about futures thinking, check out the course. It's called Become a Futurist, Meta Future School. And uh, on that course, you'll learn not just the theory of futures, but you'll actually get hands-on using the tools. You'll learn how to do emerging issues analysis, scenario planning, you know, these kinds of tools that often have been the preserve of governments and, uh, and you know, corporations and their ivory towers. Well, after COVID, I think it's never been more pressing for people to start thinking about the future differently and, and ensuring that they're not creating some of those meanings that we talked about earlier, you know, and, um, and I'll just, and I'll just leave you with this. When I was job hopping a lot, I felt like a headless chicken, truth be told. And that was kind of my, that was my metaphor of the time. I felt like job hopping was actually not doing me any good. I felt like it was it was hurting my job prospects. But through futures, we think about the future we want to create, and we try to create enabling metaphors that support our strategies. And I realized I love consulting. I love the diversity. I love the variety. I, I, I love working for lots of different organizations. I shifted the you know, that old metaphor of the headless chicken to the, to the Swiss army knife, you know, I'm, I'm like a tool that can get you out of any problem. You know, my experience in many different organizations in many different roles makes me all the stronger because of it. And now organizations, you know, they need a tool like that. Um, with that said, I can't remember the last time I ever felt, God, I could really do with a Swiss <laughs> army knife right now. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, it's about, making sure that our stories and our, our meanings are aligned with strategies. And this is why often, um, you know, you have a vision for the future, but um, you don't have uh, the cultural link, um, which means culture often eats strategy for breakfast. Mm -hmm. So you, you'll learn how to do that in a systematic way 
um, through a course like that. And you can find me on LinkedIn. Just send me a message on LinkedIn saying you 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 heard me having a chat with Kyle, and uh, you know I'll definitely connect. And you know I'm always happy to to answer questions or have conversations. It's it's all good. Pleasure to meet you, Kyle. Great. Thank you so much, Adam. It was really great talking to you. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best. All the best to you.